How is racism defeated? My name is Johan. My name is Guy. I'm Sikelele in Sokota, but I go by Sky. My name is Hope. Okay, Dr. Tasha Oosthuizen. She's a senior lecturer at Northwest University at the School for Psychosocial Health. And um, she has a special interest in, in, in violence and reconciliation, uh, violence towards women and children, and then also into community psychology. She lectured community psychology to us, and she also prepared us uh, in our master's year for the practical group work at the correctional facilities. So she taught us a lot about going in with an appropriate um, attitude. Um, and then she was also my study supervisor for uh, the research dissertation. And um, I must say, I can recall a number of, of meetings that we spoke about the study for maybe five to 10 minutes. And then we spent a good 20 to 30 minutes discussing um, <laughs> other matters like, you know, like, like, like racial matters, um, like, like conflict in South Africa and, and, you know, what, what's being done and what can be done about it. So I think that's one of the reasons I'm quite excited to, to be talking to you and, and to have your, your insights and your wisdom, um, to have you part of the conversation. Thank you, Jan. I just remember one of those, those, um, research meetings um you told me a story it was about a person who worked on a farm who the um the farmer decided to let him ride in in the front of his bucket instead of of, of at the back and just how that um brought about um, a lot of a lot of change in the the farm worker in how how that changed the farmer's perspective of him and and how that simple action caused so much um, change, I think, in, in their interaction. And you know, that, that really stayed with me. Yes, Johan, can I just maybe quickly add, uh, a friend of mine was sort of like, um, shall I say, uh, supervising a farm while the actual farmer was on holiday. And he started to do that. Previously, there was not a lot of conflict, but from time to time, there was conflict between the workers and the farmer. And after my friend, he stayed there for three months. And while he was sort of like taking over the whole farming thing set up there for the three months, he started to integrate them uh, in a very good way. But that was where he actually started to let the people sit with him in front of the bucket. And that changed that whole community eventually. That was a piece of info that I later received from the guy who did this uh, after I told you the story. Yeah. Mm. Wow. So, so just like that minor, minor thing is like just letting someone right at the front um, came up out with a lot of change. Uh, yes, I think the basic thing that, that I took from that was, you know, it is showing respect, first of all, and secondly, um, to cut this thing of some of us are on a higher level and some of us on a level down there. And, you know, um, to come back to the example of a farm specifically, it's in a certain sense a very close community. And uh, as you know, with close communities, breeding ground for conflict, trouble, and, you know, someone that is the, shall I say, the manager or whatever, and that manager can decide what he or she wants to do. 
now that can also relate to business but i think in in, in businesses you know it's more into the open you walk into spar and you can see everyone can see what's going on there which is not always like that on a farm mm. yeah that's that's it's it's exciting to me to hear that you know that it really impacted more than just that worker but it, it impacted the community as well and it, it seems so simple on face value it seems like anyone can make a decision to do um, an act like that and that, that's you know that that's part of what we are looking for in in this project that that we decided to undertake um, is what can South Africans you know what can people do individuals in our daily lives to start defeating racism more and more I think it's wonderful Johan and maybe uh, what I can add to that is you know I I can, I can uh, knowing from psychology, you can change one thing or you can change a lot of things by doing one thing at a time. So, yes, I agree with you. Yes, yes. And um, just to add something, it, it really stuck with me how it seemed like stories from people in individual therapy could really cross racial bar barriers in amazing ways. You know, I've heard stories from, from Sikilerwa I've heard stories from my supervisor <clears throat> in my internship year, and I thought, surely there must be more we can do on a much broader level to include much more people, you know, the same type of principles. Um, and, and I think that that, that gives me um, excitement and hope. Um, but maybe just to start us off generally, where do you think we stand in South Africa at the moment uh, regarding racism? Is, is, am I supposed to answer you on? Yes. Well, <laughs> yeah, that okay. is just a, an intro question, but I think if, if there's something else that's more prevalent for you, um, you know, you can really fall in for anywhere and we'll just have a discussion from there. Okay. Um, I also don't want to take over the conversation. All that I can say is because I'm following the news very closely, and but I'm also working, you know, with people in communities. I personally get the idea that there are, if I can use the word, small pockets of, um, shall I say, good deeds or uh, specific things that people do for one another that gets unnoticed. I know that mm. there is a guy who created this site, uh, something like the Good Friday guy or the Something like that. I will have to check. But this guy started also to capture good deeds that will go unseen, you know, if you don't actually mention it to the wider pub public. So all that mm. I can say is I think there are pockets of really doing good deeds, but it's not always mentioned everywhere. What we hear on the news are 99.999% conflict. And, and stuff like that and with that I'm not saying it's wrong I mean it I mean wrong that like um, the media covers that it's good to hear that but I think sometimes they need to also cover the so-called good deeds and and where we look out for one another acts of kindness if I can use that mm. I think you know I, I agree a lot with that in the sense that I've also experienced a large difference between what I experience, you know, personally, 
uh, say for example in in the um, class uh, of 2018 you know our interactions to me was a quite different story than the news headlines um, of, of of that same year uh, that that stood out um, and you know I think it of course it's necessary to hear what what is happening in the news although it's maybe inflated a lot um, at times, but it's, it is not an accurate, or it may not be an accurate representation of what's really going on in the everyday interactions of, of South Africans. Yeah. I think maybe also the other thing is that um, we expect South Africa to be in a better position, you know? So um, those, those, those small, not necessarily insignificant, they are significant, but then because um, there's still a lot that is supposed to be going right, racial-wise, that is still not going right. So hence, therefore, I think that's why um, there's still a lot of highlight or emphasis still on um, the, the, the discrimination, the racism, more than there is on the goodies that go unnoticed. Mm. Mm -mm. Yeah, um, I, I don't want to um, jump in someone else's uh, speaking turn, but... It, it, it makes sense to me what you're saying, Sky. You know, there, there is a reason that um, racial tension gets so much um, attention in the media and why, why it carries so much energy. You know, I think if, if we look at the collective um, experience of different cultures, you know, I think it, it, it may be easy to activate, um, you know, it, I think collectively there is still an experience of hurt, you know, say in the average black South African, there is still trauma, you know, and it takes a simple act or something in the media to, to really tap into that. And, you know, similarly towards, um, uh, if I don't just want to speak about black and white, um, but there's, there's underlying experiences in white South Africans as well. Um, and, and, you know, uh, something in the media can tap into that and, and flare that up as well. And I think your know, everyday good deeds is absolutely necessary. Um, mm. But still, mm. there, there is a lot that is left behind if we do not speak about or do not address some of the, the shared collective unconscious experiences. Yeah, that's, I think that's definitely true. And speaking about good what I want to ask um, from Dr. O is, you know, in terms of, because it is quite a good deed to, you know, work with communities, but what was your initial interest? What inspired you to work with communities in terms of violence, but also the um, reconciliation part? What inspired you to get into that community space? Um, I hope, yes, it's a long story, but I'm going to be very brief. I grew up on a farm where my dad introduced a system of, uh, and some farmers did it, but I can only talk from my dad's side. We, the, the farm workers had the, the housing, shall I say, like, in you know, brick build-up houses, but then he also allocated to them on the farm an area where they could plant their own crops and stuff like that, vegetables, they could have their own cattle, and, you know, they, it, it was like, they had an area where they could have their own small, if I can use that, farming activities going on. And when I asked my dad why he's doing what, what is the reason for him doing that? He said that he felt that if a person feels that you have responsibility for your own thing, 
then you will share the greater responsibility. And yeah. I think in the process, for me, it was like, you know, we, we had very good interaction and relationships with the people that worked on the farm. And yeah. I remember when my, my, when my dad retired, when he, he, uh, he sold the farm when he retired, um, the farm folk actually, you know, they, they were crying and saying that they're so sad that my dad now sold the farm. But the main thing for me was I learned, and we also learned from my parents that, that we had to respect the farm, the people working on the farm. You know, they, if, if we, let's say, for instance, um, the ladies working in the house, if, if we want them to do something, we could not go and just say, can you please do this or that for us? We had to ask my mum to ask them because she also said there's a hierarchy and I think that that respect that, that I noticed amongst my that, uh, parents was very good. But then I end up at, at Rusalila uh, Further Education and Training College. And we, um, we started to run a project here in the Fredefort Dome area. We, we actually assisted a nursery school. It's a very deep rural, you know, from things that, that one would throw away and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. Oh. Um, I'm actually uh, very fascinated um, by the, the fact that you uh, you were brought up with that, and um, especially with the notion that um, some of um, us Black people, we assume that because white people were brought up um, privileged, because they were brought up um, during the apartheid era, maybe that is something that they picked up, you know, so maybe what would make it hard for South Africa to reconcile and be in a place where um, uh, discrimination doesn't exist anymore uh, would not happen necessarily because uh, white people are brought up and they are brought up to know that black people are inferior. So I'm really fascinated that even from your bringing up, like when you were brought up, that it was installed in you that you had to respect everybody, including black people. Yeah, yeah. Um, something that I also want to add, you know, for me growing up in the apartheid thing and not actually be so aware what apartheid was also uh, was uh, all about. Uh, our next to former neighbors, and you know, what you will find in rural areas, the farmers are very close and they, they care a lot and stuff like that. But our next of neighbors um, brought up a black boy, his parents passed away. I don't know if he was officially adopted, but they brought him up. He was about two or three youngers, younger than what I was at that stage. And I remember mm. that um, at times, you know, it was like my parents, we, we, we were always caring and he was with us and it was no problem. But they could not attend the white church because of this black boy. So they went to okay. the black church and, uh, you know, they couldn't even go on holiday by you know, taking him with because it was not allowed. And I think that started to sensitize me about but what is going on with this apartheid thing. Yeah. No, and I think I'm really curious about how many stories are there like this, which is different than um, the main story that maybe you got, Sky, as you grew up, you know, the main story of uh, and, and, and the main way in which we saw um, black people were treated by white people, you know, it's a very strong and very dominant story. And I just, 
you know, I wonder how many different stories are there to that, mm. you know, on a very personal level that we just mm. did not know about or did not see. Or, because, you know, I believe that, you know, yeah, they, they are definitely the violent examples, you know, and the, the, the inhuman examples. And it's, it's for me something that's really, it, it angers me. And then in the same voice, I know that that wasn't all the people, and I hope not the majority of people, they were still um, very human um, interactions. Mm. You yeah, see, because the stories. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, sorry, sorry. Oh, no. So I was going to say that uh, because the dominant story that exists, especially in the Black communities, is the ill treatment. Uh, and the discrimination, you know, the, 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 the horrifying stories that, 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 that's, that one can't even imagine going through. So it's, it's really inspiring. And I think that it is, um, it is good as well as encouraging to hear such stories, like the alternative um, narratives. So that at least, you know, we can start thinking that, yes, it was, it was not necessarily everybody during the apartheid who was doing that. And that um, there are ways to move forward. Yes. Uh, and I must also agree with you, I also saw horrible and very inhumane things. And I think the thing for me was also, you know, <laughs> I was the only girl growing up uh, amongst nine boys. Now, uh, that yeah. meant the following. My dad's <laughs> family, his, my, my great-grandfather and his brothers all came from the Eastern Cape and they settled around Greenland's copies in the free state where I grew up. So I grew up with the cousins, uh, nephews, people like that. that were, I was the only girl. They were all guys. So, uh, <laughs> and I saw things, specifically the older ones. I, I saw things that they did and that what they did to black people. And, you know, I would go home and, and, and we will uh, talk about that. And I remember we, we had this wonderful, and this is still the beautiful memory for me, we always had a wonderful time around the, 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 the you know, the table when we had um, our lunch or our dinner or whatever. And we would speak about this and ask questions. And, and that was an opportunity that my parents also used to tell us how we are supposed to treat people. Speaking of that, how, you know, do you have, which obviously has been, you know, any experiences of, when you go into communities to work with the community, how do you approach experiences where situations, I mean, where there's resistance based on what Sky says, you know, a black individual, I'm assuming some of these communities obviously are, are black um, oriented. Individuals still have, you know, in their heads, the fact that no, this white person, you know, back in the day, this is how they treated us. How do you deal and get through that resistance in order to continue with say the project that you have to do at the time in that particular place? hope what i try to do okay there are two things the first thing that i wanted to say when i was at busilela college and we decided to become involved in this specific deep rural school in the fredeford dome area there um, we spoke to the community leaders which included the farmers as well as because you will still find if i can use the word small tribes of people so we spoke to the tribal captains as well. But that the whole idea was, the common goal was to make sure that children get an education. So that was coming from a bit of a different angle. And then the CEO of the college, a wonderful, wonderful guy, 
Dr. Moshwanaisi, he went with. So he was, if I can use the word, he was my entrance to the community. And you know, still up till today, if you approach a tribal captain as a woman, and then also as a white woman, they will rather speak to a, a, a man or a male person than a female person. And there's a lot of mm. rituals that I learn if you do that. So that was the one thing. The other thing is the work that I've done in uh, Ikoging specifically was part of, uh, it actually flows out of my research, but there I first worked with some of the church ministers and I started to build relationships of trust with them. So when I moved further into the community, it was actually via the church congregations. So I already had the goodwill of the reverends and the pastors and those people opened the rest of the doors. And I think for me, the main thing is when you go in there to never ever, like I'm now the expert and, and you are here to learn from me. To approach it with, we are here to learn from one another, and I want to share in your wisdom. That, for me, is the most important. Mm. So, um, Dr. O, I just want to, um, from from what you've said, so you, I can just imagine that it's now generations, because from your um, from your upbringing and now having your own children, and um, what 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 can of messages do you send to them about um, racism? Like, how 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 do you do it differently to maybe say other white people who who who, who grew up um, differently from you? Well, the basic thing for me again is, as always, to respect people. Now, unfortunately, I don't have children of my own, but I have a very good relationship with my nephews, nieces, cousins. You name it, you call it the whole, shall I say, all six of them. But <laughs> yes. um, I think the, the thing for me always is to respect people. And once you started to respect people and they see how you act, because this is a thing about children, you know, because I, mm. I very regularly with them caring and stuff like that. If something happens, I mean, driving in my car and let's say a guy in a mm. taxi is just sort of chipping in between myself and the next car. I have the opportunity to yell or to be angry or to just say, okay, let's give him the gap. And that is a continuous, you know, type of being sensitive, specifically when you are around children. And not that I'm saying if I'm alone, I might not no, yell no. or I might not yell or might not say or might not remark. But then I want to say when it comes to that, Students of all colors and races, yeah, on you know, in Pachestrum on the build, also struggle to know the, the road rules. <laughs> but, but the basic thing is, how do you act? Do your actions and what you say correlate? Mm. So, mm. the moment when I start to use swear words or derogatory sort of terms or whatever, and then also when they care here looking at how I treat the people working for us. Now, we're in a very fortunate position. The guy that is working in the garden and his wife are both working for us. She's working in the house and he's working in the garden. And just to give you an example, they are now working for us for the past 26 years. Now, the guy's mm -hmm. name is Elias, and um, we have this family house in Philippoulis, which is about six hours drive from Pochestrum. 
And two years ago, we had to do some uh, general maintenance work on the house in Philip Willis. And I decided I'm going to take Elias because he's a handyman. He's very, very good. You know, he can paint and actually he can do a little bit of woodwork as well. So I decided I'm going to ask Elias if he's willing to then go with me there for a whole week. I booked him into a guest house about a block away from where the house is. My brother joined us a day later and, and we all worked together doing maintenance. I mean, it was like working hand in hand with one another. And um, I mean, he was traveling with me in my car and we had very nice conversations to Philippoulis and back. And I remember that we were stopping, you know, at, at um, garages, getting lunch and stuff like that. And we were sitting at the same table and people were looking at us like, what, what, what is going on here? Because I'm talking, I'm now again talking quite a lot first. But I mean, that I was like, in, no, that, that, we are together and, and Elias and I had a wonderful conversation. So I think um, that is also part of what other people see, how you work hand in hand with the people that you are in contact with. And then lastly, I just want to say when I was at Busilela College, most of my colleagues were black. And um, I'm sorry actually to say what I'm going to say now, but my experience was that we were much more of a family as no, colleagues no, no, no than what I experienced since I've been at the university. Um, so it's more about people and not color. Yes. Respect, yeah, just respect people for who they are more than the color of their skin. Yes, yes. I also want to add, and, and please, this is now not to, to, to uh, splash good deeds, not at all. Um, this uh, Elias guy that I just spoke about, He's, he's very good with his hands and many years he went through like a skills course where he learned how to, to weld. And um, two years ago, every year we decided or decide to, to give both him and his wife, uh, really not to give them sort of like, you know, a worthwhile gift that they can do something with. So that year we decided to give Elias and them sort of like, a, they call it, uh, Johan, you will know better, an inverter welding machine type of thing. It's a very tiny type of welder, very modern, and it doesn't use so many electricity, etc. And we gave that to them, and we said, okay, whatever you can do, because we, be, we heard from Elias, you know, sometimes to weld just a small thing, people can charge them 70 or 90 or 150 or whatever rand. So, and since then, he and one of his sons actually do small projects in the township where they earn some money. So, mm. yeah. Mm. That is actually really fascinating because um, in one of our um, previous interviews, we um, spoke about being stuck um, into, because a lot of um, maybe some actually people, black people who grow up in the, in the rural areas, they get stuck there and their children get stuck there. And um, it's inspiring to hear such stories because then with the empowerment, people can break free from, I mean, if, 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 he, if you can empower him like that, then you can empower his, you empowering his children as well and the generation that follows after that. Mm. Yeah, so yes. I think those, those stories are the stories that we should be highlighting on not to say that um the other stories should not be heard but those those are really encouraging stories that um 
you know, you can look at and other people can look at and think that hmm, I can also play a part. Yeah. Absolutely. Honestly, and you can ask everyone that knows me very well. I always say when I win the lotto, I will do two mm-hmm. things. First of all, I will start like, because this is also what I learned at Vusilela College. I will st- sort of start like a, a incubator skills training center. Now that means the following, you have classes where you train people, you upskill them, you give them some entrepreneurial information, skills training and stuff like that. But now this is where the the important thing comes in. Then you give them the materials. You can get sponsorships or whatever. Let's say for instance, you, you have now taught them how to do welding and you give them materials so that they can, let's say, weld or make chairs or whatever. And then you also have a site there where they sell these things. So it's a one-stop shop, if I can put it like that, and people support uh, the training and they support them by buying the articles. And then, I mean, if they go into the communities, they can then also train others and support or whatever. So that is why we call it an incubator system. It's something that, you know, will take care of itself and will roll out to the whole community i think giving skills to people is like the richest gift you could ever Um, give to somebody because mm. with that they can do so many things like literally and then yes i want to find out dr o you are kind of working on you know what one would say like the bigger spectrum of things you know in terms of working with communities but also really jumping um you know bridging the communication gap between you know different races but what would you advise some of our listeners you know in terms of racial um, reconciliation on an individual level not on a bigger scale such as you are working on what sorts of things can people do to really bridge that gap between them and a person of a different race whether it's somebody that they sit with in class or somebody that they work with or any type of relationship Mm. Hope I will say, listen, listening, listen to the stories, give the people a space to tell these stories. I based this on a prof from uh, the University of KZN, I can't remember his name anymore, who started what he referred to as, and I, I think you know about the, the, the concept of talking therapy, but he started like in small groups first and then uh, individually, he started out by asking people who experience pain, phys- emotional pain, struggling to put things behind them. And what actually happened is they met, if I'm not mistaken, on a weekly basis, one evening every week. And then it's just a space where people come and tell these stories. And he found sometimes you can do it in a very small group like three or four people telling these stories and everyone is listening and they comment or it can be a one-on-one where people tell these stories and they are heard. I think yeah. the biggest problem that we have with regards to reconciliation is people are not heard. Uh, you know, parents don't listen to children or they are absent fathers or the, the grandparents. Is it too much of a divide between themselves and children and some of them, because, you know, with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission thing, uh, I followed that also very closely. Uh, lots of things have not been addressed there. And I think there's a lot of people walking around with a lot of hurt 
that needs to be heard about mm. their pain. Mm. Yeah. So I will say listening, create a safe space where they can tell the story, listen empathically and see how you can just, if a person just get the idea that, that you're really listening, you, you're really tuning in, I could tell yeah. my story. That is already a huge advantage. And I mean, we've seen that in therapy also, you know, as, you know, as psychologists, you know, even without the greatest intervention, just having someone come and speak, that does a lot and mm-hmm. feel like they are heard. That does a lot. Yeah. Uh, I think, I don't know, yeah, it, I think it was during your year on the Pilupipa train when we were at Kopis. I think you won you were part of that group of students um there was one day that i was supposed one of the i remember one of the classmates got a degree an honest degree and i then said okay i will go to the train for that day and i will then assist on the train in her place and i will never forget there was this really old gogo who came and she was a Sisutu speaking person now i'm not fluent in any black language but i know a little bit about Susutu because my dad could speak Susutu as well as a Tono. But the main thing for me was there was this translator and but she started off speaking in Afrikaans, this old Gogo, and then she changed into Susutu and this young translator was translating. About five or ten minutes into the session, she asked this translator to keep quiet and, and she, she literally <laughs> turned towards me and she said that she's now going to tell me a story. And she continued in Susutu. And I was just just focusing on her non-verbal um, communication. I was listening to her. And um, after about 25 minutes, she, she during the session, she, she cried at times and like I said, after about 45 minutes, she was like, in, I saw the smile on her face. And, and then she said in Afrikaans, I'm so grateful. You listened to me. And, and now I feel I found a solution. Um, I was only looking at the nonverbal cues. I, mm. you know, making the, the empathic sort of, mm, yes. Oh. I mean, I, if I say I maybe understood 10 sentences, whatever. That was a lot. But there I noticed the power of listening. Yes. So then, um, Dr. O, then um, more on the, um, I think on a wider uh, spectrum, what then do you think we South Africans can do differently? Or what more do you think we should be doing in terms of racism, fighting racism? Okay. I think, honestly, if, you know, and, and this, I'm, I'm now using the words of, again, a, a wonderful Koza uh, lady that I met. She was a doctor and she was a psychologist as well from the Eastern Cape. Unfortunately, she passed on now during COVID last year. Uh, and she always said that in order to solve the problems of South Africa, even when parents, mothers are breastfeeding children, they must teach them to respect other people and to have self-respect. So I will start off by saying, what can we do on which levels to help people to understand what it means to respect yourself 
and then to respect other people. Mm. Then I think there's a lot of psycho ed that one needs to do. And I think highlighting the good deeds where there is good uh, collaboration, you know, between races. Because, I mean, racism is not only white and black. It can be between black people and colored people or Indian Mm. people and colored Mm. people, etc. So I think to sensitize people. But for me, it all boils down to respect. And then the role that we can play is to create events or getting togethers or, you know, just sit around the table and share a little bit of food and drink on whatever and and really discuss this, uh, talk about this with others. But in families, in smaller, bigger families, in community groups, in church groups, whatever. What I found, for instance, is that the prayer meetings that women specifically goes to uh, are wonderful places of opportunities where we can also start with psychoed and help them. Uh, and the reason why I also say this, and this is a difficult thing, working with women exposed to violence, is to also create the idea that although I know in most cases men are the perpetrators, women can also, uh, you know, uh, shall I say, act in violent ways towards other women, etc. But also be very cautious to just generalize and say, yeah, you know, every guy will be a perpetrator or I can't trust men or stuff like that. So that we always keep a balanced view. And and that I say with a lot of empathy because I mean, I've, I've seen what, what men did to women. But the main thing is the moment when we start to just generalize and, you know, it's like everyone is going to hurt everyone type of thing. We don't see that individual that will make the difference. Mm. So yes, I think look for groups of people where one can, you know, it's like um, having a, what is the word, like like sourdough, you know, doing things to start to influence small groups of people. And they, you know, word of mouth is a very strong thing that can continue where other people then go, you know, they can also share what they heard and see what can be done. Mm-hmm. Mm. Okay. Doc, thank you so much uh, for that. One one quick thing I want to ask be, before we finish, um, uh, Doc, you know, it, it's so valuable um, how simple it seems um, to, to sit and listen in a way to understand and in that way to cross a barrier and in that way to promote healing and being heard um, and yet it's it's also difficult I think there's a lot of challenges in doing that so maybe just what what enables you um, to to do that to sit and listen to someone um, let's take for example a taxi driver why would you not curse at him and consider his side of the story or, or what what enables you to listen to someone that is different to you and, and not to, you know, defend yourself against that person. Sure, Johan, that's a difficult one in the sense that, you know, we're all human beings and sometimes I might swear at maybe a taxi driver. But, you know, the other thing mm. that I told people many years ago is 
I think taking into account the type of business, and I'm just now using this example uh, about taxi drivers, taking into account that the way they, they do their job, because I uh, was not a friend of, but I know a taxi driver many, many years ago very well, who explained to me what is expected from him as taxi driver from the owner of the taxi. So actually I have mm. this idea of, I know they're in a different position. And so, yeah, uh, give them the gap rather than to get angry. Once I get angry, I'm not, I'm going to not also be a very, uh, shall I say, focused driver. But yeah. the main thing is self-regulation. I think there's a lot to say about self-discipline, self-regulation, and then the third one, self-talk. What am I saying when I am in a, I'm saying to myself when I'm in a conversation with someone else that is totally different from me. Am I continuously, mm. as this person speaking, continuously thinking about how I'm going to put my ideas on the table? Or am I really listening to listen to what they're saying? So that is also the, the ability to self-regulate and to allow the other person to speak and to actually tell their story. And not interrupt and you know i already have the answer there after the first thing yeah mm. that's right. so profound <laughs> okay no thank you very much uh, doc i see your, our time is running out is there maybe something else you just like to add uh, before we finish up yeah you thank you very much i think this is a wonderful project that you're busy with there are two uh people that i would suggest if you are okay with it that that one can uh, maybe also invite the one is Tabilu Mabusela she's uh, I think you might have noticed she joined us from 2019 it's a yeah. lovely lovely new young lecturer and uh, psychologist and someone that I'm continuously learning from and then okay. there's another guy he was maybe I'm not sure uh, in the honors class, I think in 2016, 2017, thereabout, his name is Saul, and he is, is a white guy, but he is working in a lot of communities. So if you're interested, I can ask them, and if you want to have a Zoom again, uh, and you want to, we can ask them to maybe join. Absolutely, Doc. Thank you so much for suggesting yeah. that. I actually forgot to ask uh, which other people you would suggest. Thank you. I hope you win the lottery. <laughs> but really, folks, I'm so proud of what you're busy with. I'm so, so proud. Honestly, I'm sitting here thinking like, wow, great stuff. This is the way to go. Thank you so much. And thank you for giving me an opportunity. And sorry for, for uh, talking so, so much. That's what we know. That's exactly what we need. <laughs> <laughs>
equality, this great country that we have, not 